Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Fishing is not cosplay. It's not a fetish that you do. It should not turn into like a furry convention in Vegas. There's no longer a weed. (laughs) <laughs> You've drained the tank of wheat. All the 50% off sushi restaurants around me are shit in their pants. <laughs> yeah. Because if this is available at Best Buy in five years, that could be really problematic. The fish doesn't want to wear that dude's symbol of marital failure either. Good morning, degenerate anglers. Welcome to Bent, the only fishing podcast we're aware of that proudly admits it giggles like the Pillsbury Doughboy when its bobber goes under. <laughs> I'm Joe Cermelli. <laughs> I like that. I'm Miles Nolte, and uh, and today we're going to celebrate those buoyant bits that bob above the surface tension. Yes. Now, look, you, you've heard us argue on this show before about yes. lots of just inane shit. Most recently, <laughs> that, that Crocs are the worst footwear ever. Abjectly false. And, and you know what? I had, a, I had a lot of reach out about that. A lot of people are on your side. Some yes, aren't, but many are. I'm so, right. okay. I'll yeah. bet. Mm, Anyway, um, you and Oliver and I can be uncomfortable together. That's fine. I don't care. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, uh, what else have we argued about? Uh, how about regionally specific fishing phrases, including stroking it? Stroking them, I believe, no. is what you're, you no. meant to say. No, it is stroking it and corked. <laughs> but on this particular topic, it turns out that Miles and I are in total agreement, right? We both proudly fish bobbers. We do. Truth. That is true. Yes. We we completely agree with that and we recognize that bobbers go by a variety of different names depending on where you live and and, and mm-hmm. how you fish if you're a british carp lover they're floats if you're a fly angler they're strike indicators which <laughs> is a term i've always kind of hated for two reasons one it just seems like an unnecessarily longer way of saying bobber or float <laughs> like it's fewer <laughs> fewer syllables is better <laughs> and two it's actually inaccurate it's not true because most of the time it's a drift indicator. 
It only mm. becomes a strike indicator when a fish takes your fly, which is like one tiny little minute percentage of the time yeah. you're fishing. It's a drift indicator if you got to be an indicator. I see what you're saying. I, I've always looked at it kind of like this, right? If it's if it's a tiny piece of yarn that you're legitimately using to detect the bite of like a Spring Creek fish barely taking a zebra midge, I'll let you call it a strike indicator if you feel better. But if it's the size of a freaking <laughs> ping pong ball... <laughs> Right, and let's be honest. Thing of a bobbers. Note the word bobber in the name, okay? Uh, and that's what that's what I see most often. It's it's a bobber. It's a bobber. Anyway, it's a bobber. Uh, but uh, not only do they have many names, but bobbers come in many designs and can be made of various materials. You've got your classic red and white plastic bobber with a push button line clip. And for the record, let me just add: if you're over ten, you should probably up your game to a more effective and versatile bobber appropriate. For the fishing situation, like Please. if you're, if you're a grown sake. ass man, if you're a grown ass man without children fishing with you, and the red and white bobber is your bobber of choice, I don't trust you. Okay, just, something. I just feel like you're being intentionally obtuse. There are so many better right. options out there. <laughs> so, something's not right, uh, and there are so many options, right? Balsa or foam stick floats, which are my personal favorites. Slip bobbers, cigar floats. What else you got? Pencil floats, spring slips, popping corks, casting bubbles. Dink floats, quill bobbers, yarnies, pinch-ons, even full-on party balloons if you're a shark and tuna guy, you know? Yeah. Um, and all of them have specific fishing applications. Yes. Yes. And this is this is why we need the celebration of bobbers. Because mm-hmm. they'll just get lumped in with that one tiny little clip-on, which we agree is kind of lame. But we're going to talk more about the iconic red and white clip-on round bobber and why it sucks later in the show. But for now, I want to focus on the stigma against bobber fishing mm-hmm. as we have talked about in the past the many different factions of the fishing community love to find points of disagreement but it seems like almost everyone except for the euro carp scene the the center pin steelhead and salmon guys and certain inshore gulf fisheries they all hate on bobbers everybody mm, else that's fair hates on yeah. the bobbers that's fair. It's the, it's like the one thing that unifies the hardcore fly fishing purists and the, the crazy bass heads. Bobbers are for little kids or people who know nothing about fishing. And that's just not true. Joe and I completely disagree with that. Yeah, that we do. But listen, before we get into our spirited defense of bobbers, let's remind everyone out there that no matter uh, where you stand on the pro or anti-bobber debate, 13 Fishing has got you covered with exceptional gear for just about every fishing situation. Indeed they do. I, uh, I lately have been finding that the lightweight Defy Silver 7-foot makes mm-hmm. an excellent choice for drifting mm-hmm. trout magnets or other lightweight. Magnets, huh? hmm. I may or may not be. <laughs> uh, magnets or other lightweight river presentations under a sensitive float. That, that particular rod, is, it's, it's soft enough to delicately cast the small rigs, but still got enough backbone to turn a big brown in heavy current. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I've played with those rods. I love those rods for drifting trout mags too, but I've sent out a Shiner 3 under a $1.99 Eagle Claw slip float with uh, <laughs> rods in their omen black line and whooped a mess of pickerel and perch and bass. So it's all, it's all, it's all bobber friendly. It is. It is. Go, go over to 13fishing.com. That's the number 13, 13fishing.com to gear up for all your pro or anti-bobber fishing missions. Yes, yes. So as we were saying, much like the point I recently made about chunking, right? Bobber fishing can be as simple or as technical as you want to make it. And you just mentioned center pinning earlier. um, And that's one area I'm very curious about, but not fluent in. Someday I want to learn that. I feel like it it should be part of my skill set. 
Um, but I have buddies that that do it that center pin and listening to them talk about their floats like almost makes me more intimidated. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh. Like they come in all different shapes and weights. I think it's measured by grams. I oh, believe. dude, and and then the shot pattern, like right. the level of right. technicality that goes into yeah. that. It's, yep, it's and next then, yeah. level. Because that all has to harmonize. The float, right. the shot pattern, all has to harmonize to to achieve the right drift depending on water and and uh, uh, your your rig and what you're fishing for. And it's it's definitely technical bobber fishing. It is. It is. And we I feel like we could spend another sh- whole show. We might have to do a center pin show because I have a lot we to say should. on that. But I don't – I'm not going to go there because it's a, it's a valid point. I also want to address a little bit further the holier-than-thou fly folks – who pretend that a fish caught beneath a strike indicator is somehow less worthy than one mm. caught on a floating dry fly or a strip streamer or a tight line swing. This is, this is a pet peeve of mine. I've, I've, I have actually <laughs> written whole articles about this uh, and had them published. If your definition of nymph fishing just involves floating down a river in a boat and like flinging a bobber rig out and mindlessly mending, then yeah, I can see the argument that this is a less technical way of fly fishing and, and sure. maybe less, I don't know, hallowed, whatever. But that, to me, just shows that you don't have enough creativity to understand how nymph fishing can be done. <laughs> I want to see those same people set up and, and actually have to work a hole or a run. I, I vehemently contend that trying to get a natural drift with subsurface flies is harder than fishing mm. a dry fly. You can see your dry fly. Yeah. You know exactly yeah. what it's doing. You know if it's dragging. You know it's off. You you can see if a fish comes up and eats it or rejects it. Fishing flies well under the surface means that you, you got to better understand current and flow. Sure. And, and, and I'm sorry, but get out of here if you think hucking streamers and stripping them back is more difficult or technical than trying to compensate for different current speeds at the surface of the water column and the bottom. Absolutely not. Same goes for tight line swing. Most of the folks I hear hating on indicator fishing just suck at it, and they want an excuse. <laughs> well, look, you know I hate nymphing, right? I've expressed this, but that's only because I just don't personally enjoy doing it. I have never said it was because it's easy, right? Like, hell yes, being a productive nympher takes skill. I mean, you know, less so if you're, if you're urine nymphing, but we'll, <laughs> we'll save that flashpoint for... Uh, another show. Uh, but we're actually kicking off this show with someone who actually feels a deep and secretive shame about his own bobber fishing. <laughs> as you'll hear, he asked us not to out him as a dirty, dirty bobber bouncer, but I ignored that because sunlight is the greatest <laughs> antiseptic. Something like that. Uh, back again to offer his unique take on smooth moves. The segment where people in the fishing industry tell us ridiculous stories about things that clients do or say is my good friend, Pat Cook, manager of Whitetail Country Fly Shop on the Upper Delaware River. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? Oh, my God. So I am sitting once again in the official guide shack of Cross Current Guide Service on the Upper Delaware River. I've I've recorded here before, but we have a new guest here sitting sitting with me is my buddy Pat Cook. How you doing, Pat? Pretty good. Good, good. Now you are the you are the manager of Whitetail Country Fly Shop, correct? That's correct. Okay, and we've had you on before to tell some shop stories, but this is different today because we're not in the shop. We actually we did a thing today. We did a thing today that we have never done before. We fished together today. I wouldn't call it fishing. I was going to say it was not good. The company was good. The fishing 
it uh, left a bit to be desired. No, not nary a fish was found. Right. And you bobber balled all day. I mean, you just, you were like pulling out all the stops. Don't ever tell anyone that ever again. Okay. I, I might erase that. I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, you know, um, it was, it was, it was pretty much, um, 20 mile an hour gust in the face all day. I mean, steady, steady 15, I'd say. Lackluster would be an overstatement. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. Cause uh, we had a good time and, um, we're, we're hanging out here now and we're drinking beers and um, you had hinted a while back that that whenever I was ready, you had some some fresh shop stories to share. So, you know, we talk to guides and captains uh, on smooth moves all the time, but uh, it, it's fun to always hear the perspective of the guy behind the counter. I always said you're the unsung hero. So, what do you what do you got fresh for us? Give us give us a good one. Okay, so um, this is uh, I'd say August. Okay, you know, we'll call it the slow season. <laughs> Okay. Which I enjoy. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'll get into the shop in the morning and I can actually drink my coffee. You know, a lot of times I'll get there and there's already a car waiting for me. Right. Which is understandable. Right. You know, you get to the river, you're ready to fish. Folks are eager. Yes. People have an agenda. Mm-hmm. Going to the fly shop is one of them. <laughs> Whether or not I'm ready for that, it's not up to me. But that's, that's okay. That's what we're there for. Anyway, from the fly shop, there's a view of the road that passes by. So I can see everyone that's coming to the fly shop. It's a long driveway. So you, I can you, see you, that, you see the riffraff coming. I can see that blinker turn on. <laughs> There's nowhere else they can go. You can't make a right. You can only go left. Right. I know if they're coming. <laughs> so I see this car coming down the road. <laughs> and it's got a flat tire. Okay. And I'm like, go straight. <laughs> just go just go man i see that blinker come on you know <laughs> i i that okay. morning actually so i drink half calf coffee okay i don't like to get all jazzed up because i i you know i like to i like the 50 percent 50 percent enthusiasm level it's like <laughs> Do we need to stop? <laughs> no, no, we don't need to stop. I would know. 50, 50% enthusiasm level. That's where I like to be. Mm-hmm. C average. Mm-hmm. Like any higher than that, mm-hmm. I might get too fired up and say something I don't mean. Mm-hmm. Guy pulls in the parking lot and I'm expecting him to change the tire. Sure. Just use your parking lot to get back on track. Sure. Right. Yeah. Brand new Subaru Outback. Okay. Gets out of the car, comes into the fly shop. I'm like, maybe he needs assistance. He comes in. Standard question. What are they hitting on? <laughs> he went right to that? Yeah. No no, no mention of the tire. No acknowledgement of the tire. Okay. And I'm like, okay, well, pheasant tail nymph work great. Size 18 to 20. Sulfur's around. Small olives, 18 to 20 covers it. Okay, great. He goes over, grabs the flies, comes back, pays for them, goes out to the car. So I run outside. To do the right thing. You're going to let him know. I'm going to let him know. So I run outside. I'm like, hey, you got a flat tire. He says, oh, I do? I said, yeah, you do. Uh, driver's side left. He gets out. He says, oh, yeah. I say, well, you got a spare? And he's like, yeah, I think so. So I go around to the back, and I open up the, the his uh, hatchback, mm-hmm. and it's filled with camping gear. Okay. And I said, you got a bunch of camping gear down here. He says, oh, yeah, I, I took the tire out so I could fit more stuff in the car. So I say, okay, cool. You got enough stuff in here. <laughs> To drive down to Tierra del Fuego and back. 
In the meantime, you need to get a spare tire. I know a place over in Hancock that can take care of this for you. He said, well, how about this? Do you have a spare that I can borrow? I say, well, that's my Ford Ranger over there. And as you can see, the tires are a different size for starters. (laughs) Number two, my spare is rusted on the frame and it's not coming off. So he says, okay, well, how about this? I'm going to go fish for a little bit. Do you mind, I'll give you the money. Do you mind driving over and grabbing the tire for me? I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I got to watch the shop. So he says, okay. So he just goes, he goes fishing. And I was hoping at this point that I could just wipe my hands clean of this situation altogether. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen that way. So he comes back an hour later and he says, hey, uh, what was the name of the tire place? And I said, that's uh, West Main Auto. Um, I can give you the number if you need it. And he said, no, that's all right. I'll just drive over there. (laughs) I was like, okay, you're going to bend the rim out. You know, it's going to cost you a little bit more. He's like, oh, that's all right. I'm going to stop at 191 bridge and fish a little bit on the way. So I'll take a break. (laughs) So I see the the car. He's exiting the shop parking lot. Car stops. Goes into park. (laughs) Gets out. Comes back in. He said, hey, can I borrow your truck? (laughs) So I said, "Um, I don't feel comfortable letting you drive my truck. What I can do is I can call them and I can have a tow truck come over. And he's like, well, if the tow truck comes over, then I got to wait for it. I was hoping that I could just borrow your truck. I'll go fish 191 bridge for a little bit. This is not real. I swear to God, it's 100% real. I, I mean, this is, this is a true story. Keep going. So he's like, well, I was hoping I could borrow your truck and I could fish 191 bridge for a little bit and then I'll go grab the tire and I'll come back and then we can fix it. And in my head at this point, I'm like, there's no longer a we. <laughs> You've drained the tank. Of we. <laughs> You've dredged the bottom of we. There is only I. And I will call my friend and he will come get your car and change the tire for you. And you can continue your day of fishing. And is that and is that is that what happened? To the best of my recollection. <laughs> That's just my story. I'm going to stick to it. So once again, like this is why I love you, dude. Because like there, it's it. I I have I have compared you to Stephen Wright on past shows, and like there, like there's no punchline. This is just too real life. Like this is just real life. Well, when you work in a fly shop, number one, people are indoors, right? Mm-hmm. So they they react similar to the way they work if they came to your house. Mm-hmm. There's, they have a certain level of etiquette to them, and you have to, too, in responding to that. So it, it's kind of subdued in a way. Sure. Like where if this was happening in a truck stop in the middle of nowhere, there'd probably be words exchanged, and you'd be like, you're out of your mind. What are you even doing here? You could die. But because it's a fly shop, you know, you're like, okay, well, number one, my goal is that you catch fish. So I'm going to sit here and let you basically choke me and throw me on the ground and take my truck <laughs> as long as you get to catch fish. 
And I appreciate the subtle response that most people don't understand is sarcasm because I saw it firsthand today. We were floating down the river today and we floated past a gentleman who was waiting and he asked us if we caught anything and we said no. And then you asked him and he said, well, I just got started. And your response was perfect. Like who says like that? It was so brilliant. It was one word. Perfect. And that's why we love you. And that's why we're going to keep having you on. And we appreciate you being here yet again. Anytime. Oh, Pat missed his calling. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't, I'm not hating on what he does, but I, I'm, I'm sure he's a great store manager and all. But, he is. Uh, yeah. The dude should be doing stand up somewhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he should. He absolutely should. There's great stuff about how he prepares his coffee. That had me rolling, but like the segment was already getting long, and I'm like, we have to lose the the Pat's coffee preparation regiment. Like we just don't have the room. Um, I also learned that when recording with Pat, it's best to get four or five beers in him first. So yeah. I'll I'll know that for next that. time. Um, I'm I'm just glad dude's not trying to create a semi serious, semi humorous fishing podcast, or we might be looking for <laughs> new jobs. So. Pat, uh, Pat, don't get any ideas. Uh, you know, I I hear you, but I don't I don't know that he has the instincts to track down the the, the hard hitting, groundbreaking, life changing stories that we come up with in fish news. Fish news that escalated quickly. So Miles and I did a thing, and full credit <laughs> goes to Miles. Full credit goes to you because oh, this was you. absolutely you. your idea. Um, but but. We now have a public bent podcast Spotify playlist. And I gotta tell I gotta say, this was so fun to put together. Yeah. And I I think both of us like we got lost in it. And I realized after creating this, <laughs> we, like, nothing, we got lost in it enough <laughs> to annoy both of our wives. Yeah. My yeah. wife's like, Are you even listening to me? I'm like, No, I'm looking no, for songs. No, okay. I'm not. I'm not listening to you. Sorry. But I think I like <laughs> like nothing paints. A picture of who you are and like what you're about better than a huge Spotify playlist. Um, and man, like we're we're all over the map with this one. And it's it's bear in mind, it's only me and Miles contributing to this. So it's it's just this perfect reflection and combination of our tastes, and we share a lot of them. But then we also wander away from each other at times within the playlist, which makes it which fun. Is, yeah, that rounds it out. It gives it some depth. If it was if we were all picking the same songs, it would be boring. And the exactly. original Originally, when I first came up with this idea, it was like, oh, let's make it a bent playlist so it was going to be all punk. Mm-hmm. But then, then Joe, you made, you made a very strong case that we should use this as, as a, a broader dumping ground for all of our eclectic totally. musical tastes. Yeah. So I, I, I decided, all right, I'll, I'll broaden it out besides just the, the, the punk and ska. I, I threw and sprinkled in some reggae. Cause yep. I know that's not something you've really gotten into. And then, and then I threw in some hip hop to round yep. things out a little bit, though we have agreed to veto <laughs> terms that this is important to me. Anyway, either one of us can veto any song at any time. And I am, uh, I was listening to it yesterday on repeat and this one song came up. So I'm <laughs> saying I'm considering flexing that option on some of your eighties pop editions, but for the moment I have allowed, I'm allowing them to stand. If they annoy me too much though, some of them might go away. Just, just I, will, I, I, that's okay. It's your call. I'd never do yeah. that to you. I'd never stifle your, your oh. musical taste and creativity, but yeah, I stuck some things in there. Cause I want, I want you guys to listen and be grooving and then just be like, where did this, what, why is this here? <laughs> that's the fun. Okay. Um, but look, if I'm being honest, right. 
There's truly, there's nothing you've added that I question. Like, I like it all. I even on the, the other reggae. hand, even the re- yeah, dude, I got no problem with reggae. I look, right. I'm I'm planning on finding some new music because didn't isn't there a study that like once you hit thirty, you stop finding new music? Like it's you just true. are stuck with what you're listening. So yeah, I see this. I see your picks as an opportunity for me to find new things that I like. But I on the other hand, like I went all in. I combed the archive. Okay, and there there is representation of all the phases. Of my life on that, pl- like there's seventh grade Jinko <laughs> jeans wearing Joe. There's high school uh-huh. punk Joe, including I even stuck in a few bands that nobody's ever heard of, but my band in high school used to play with them. Like they'd be the yep. headliners while we yep. were opening. So it's like yep. total nostalgia. Um, and then there's the the college years post hardcore metal Joe. It's we're all over the place. Yeah, no, I put in at least one local band that I used to go see in high school just because I think they're great, but no one's ever heard of them. Uh, there's a whole, but there's, there's a bunch of oddies. I don't know where I did. Last I checked, I think we we're sitting at 14 hours. So there's, there's plenty to listen to. <laughs> and some of it's really just, some of it's there to make you laugh. Some of it's there to make you wonder what, what the hell did I just listen to? And some <laughs> of it hopefully will get you to discover some new bands or some yes. new genres you hadn't been into before. That's what we hope anyway. Yes. Yes. And so let us know what you guys think. Let us know what we missed. Suggest stuff. You know how to reach us. Maybe we'll even down the road add some fan faves and shout you out, as in this addition to the to the playlist, courtesy of you. Um, so search for the Bent Podcast playlist on Spotify. If for some reason you can't find it, there's a link in my Instagram uh, link tree profile thing. You can find it there. But rock out with us, please. And as yeah. my bud, uh, my bud Neil Anglin has already said, he's like, "Yo, this is a super dank playlist." Which it I really think is. that's a good kids are saying really dank. Uh, anyway, so got that out of the way. Let's move on to news. As always, right? This is a competition, Miles, and I do not know what stories the other dude is bringing to the table. And at the end, our main man Phil, the engineer, will declare winner. But before I pass the mic to you, I would just like to let Phil know that just for him, I added "Bleed American" by Jimmy Eat World <laughs> to the Bent playlist because that's actually a good song. Yeah, I like that song. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll give you so that, that should you lure that. you in, Phil. But then if you stick around, we'll have you, you know, crimping studs to your sweater vest in no time. <laughs> anyway, Miles, what do you got? What do you got for news, bud? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, my obsession with finding stories to combat the idiocy of Seaspiracy continues. Oh, here we go. I cannot <laughs> I cannot say how long this is gonna go on, but I can say I'm not done yet. I just can't, I'm not over it. Uh and I should I should say that I got the idea for this segment from an article published in the magazine Scientific American earlier okay. this week. So that's where this comes from. Do you remember how you covered a story a, a while back about the the rampant mislabeling of fish? Yes. Yeah, I do. So yeah, it was a, the quiz, the UK quiz. Can you yep. identify these fish? Yes. I'm building off of that. And and to recap, uh, research suggests that about a third of the fish we buy at markets and restaurants is fraudulently mislabeled. Mm-hmm. And and the fraud is particularly acute with certain popular fish. So 87% of the fillets being sold as snapper are not snapper. They're, yep. they're probably tilapia, maybe sea brim or rockfish. Uh, the spicy tuna roll you, you bought it at the gas station the other day, 57% chance that wasn't tuna. Um, about a quarter... <laughs> Uh, the halibut you buy is actually tilefish, and, and the grouper and cod you buy are actually catfish. The FDA and various watchdog agencies have been working to crack down on this problem, but it's 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 nearly impossible to look at a piece of fish and definitively determine if it's mislabeled. Uh, 
And if we can't even be sure what kind of fish we're buying, how can we have any confidence in the origin of our fish, right? If, if you're one of those people who, who look carefully at the fish you buy because you don't want to support overfishing or destructive catch methods or slavery, this would seem to suggest that Seaspiracy may indeed be correct. The only way we can avoid contributing to those unsavory practices is to quit eating seafood altogether or, you know, catch it yourself. Yeah. There is, however... Another potential solution. If the the FDA and those other agencies just had some kind of readily available, easy to use, quick technology to ID fish meat, they could theoretically curb a lot of this problem before it hits consumers. And as is so often the case, when we humans encounter problems, we come up with solutions. Problem solving is it's kind of our thing. It's kind of what we do. <laughs> Enter University of Texas graduate student Abby, get, I'm, I'm going to mess this up, get Maton, I think. I'm going to say it a lot, so sorry, Abby. Abby, get Maton, I think. Get Maton was introduced to a tool called the Mass Spec Pen when she first started doing her graduate study in chemistry. The Mass Spec Pen is, isn't actually a pen at all, but it's this little handheld wand thing that kind of looks like a pen, and doctors use it to detect tumors. Get Maton hypothesized that if the pen could correctly identify human tissue, it might work for other animals as well. And according to the research she just published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry, she was right. I'm just going to quote the description of what she did straight from the, the Scientific American article because they did it better than I could anyway. So, so here's the quote. Getmaten touched the pen's tip to samples of fish she had bought at the grocery store. The pen released a droplet of solvent onto the sample surface, and then sucked it back into the pen, through the tube, and into the mass spectrometer. Inside the machine, each sample was automatically dissolved in the solvent and then vaporized, turning its chemical components into ions. The ions were beamed through a magnetic field, which bent their path so that each one shot in a new direction, based on its mass and electrical charge, before landing on a detector plate. By noting each ion's position on the plate, the system could identify which chemicals and how many of each were in the samples. So that sounded like some some serious Star Trek stuff. I don't totally understand it, but that's the basic description of how it works. Yep. Other scientists have already learned the chemical profiles of most fish species. Gat Maton and her team just had to program the mass spec pen to identify which chemical signatures were connected to which fish. They then touched the pen to a fillet, and 15 seconds later, the screen told them halibut or sockeye salmon or tilapia. The team thinks that with more work, they can further refine the pen to not only determine what type of fish it is, but other important information like if it was farm-raised or wild-caught and where exactly the fish came from. The technology has a long way to go before it can be mass-marketed, but it has the potential to be highly effective and, and relatively cheap aside from the, the initial investment in the equipment. Each test just requires one disposable tip and a couple drops of common solvent. Plus, the test does not harm the fish in any way. That, that filet remains perfectly good and safe to consume. If this does become widely accepted, we could have a much clearer picture about where all our seafood comes from, which would allow retailers and consumers to make informed decisions, which could crack down on all these issues that we keep talking about. So once again, heavy-handed, monolithic, reactionary responses to our fisheries management problems are not the only way or not even the best. Yeah, we do need to better manage our marine fisheries, 
but we are developing the tools to do this and to maintain a viable seafood industry. We're not there yet. We got work to do, but research like this and, and the longitudinal study I talked about last week suggests that, look, if we're willing to implement like a bunch of different incremental changes, we can get there. All hope is not lost, despite what people might have you think. But in the meantime, you know, maybe, uh, maybe lay off the gas station sushi, Joe, because it's probably not what you think it is. So I read this and we almost crossed over. I almost did this story, but then me being me, I, I, I knocked it out for dumb celebrity news. So I'm glad, <laughs> I'm Good. glad you Good. did it because it's an important story. Um, although I, I, when I read it, I wasn't thinking of it in the, in the conspiracy vein as much as you, but more so like all the 50% off sushi restaurants around me are shit in their pants <laughs> yeah. because if this is available at Best Buy in five years, like that could be really problematic. Like, you know what I mean? Like go to the sushi place and be like, that is not snapper. <laughs> I, I don't think it's going to be like a, a consumer product. I don't think they're going to be selling these mass spec pens at Best Buy. I think it's well, going to happen a little, to, to use a, a bad analogy, higher up food chain, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know I, what I'm saying. But I'm still going to try and call in the favor. Like, they're like you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like use the powers of the mediator to be like, look, we're going to do it. Can we review that? I need a pen. Which, like, yeah, I need one of those pens. Um, yeah, dude, no, great, great story. And um, I mean, man, talk about technology coming a long way. Because like you said, the cool thing about it is you can not, not only can you do it in 15 seconds, but you, there's no waste. You destroy nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Doing this. So yeah. how this doesn't get implemented over time to to be available everywhere in this industry, I mean, how how we don't harness this, I don't see that happening. I think this could be one of the coolest advances in terms of managing these fisheries that we've yeah. had yet. I mean, you you manage fisheries at the economic side. Right. And, and if we can be able to trace these things back and allow retailers and consumers to make informed decisions, I think that there are enough folks who are invested in that to make sure that we can, we can change the way that we consume. And without the money, the industry falls apart, right? The industry I, will change its practices in response to those economic forces. That's yeah, how it's going to happen. Yeah, and there's the, the 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 broad look at that in terms of the economics. Uh, at the same time, on, on a personal level, like I think that's pretty cool that it's going to be harder for somebody to dupe me yeah. with butterfish. I mean, yep. dude, just like taking that out of the equation, making it that much harder, because this is rampant. I mean, this story was all about that. Like it is, I don't think we can stress enough you know, people probably listen to this and the other story with the quiz, and they're like, well, yeah, that happens somewhere, but not at Joe's Shrimp Shack where I go. Yeah, it might. It's happening. Like, it, it's happening. Like, yeah. it, it, once it's breaded, man, you know, you don't, you don't know. You know, once you got a little panko on there, like, you don't know. Could be so, anything. you know, you, it's easy to have all the faith in the world in like your joint or where you get fish, but this is very common and it's tied to economics. It is cheaper. Not only are these things more sustainable, it is cheaper to get tilapia yeah, than it is red snapper. And like, dude, it's a business. You do what's good for business. And if you can dupe people with tilapia and charge red snapper prices, unfortunately, there's a lot of places that are going to go that route because yep. they are there to make money. So and if, while technically and it, that is illegal right now, we, we should say you're not yeah. allowed to do that, but without the ability to test it, it's just happening. It's so, just happening. I, I mean, you know, I guess I guess you could say 
one of the negatives is if if it's so easy to to do this ID, you're going to force people into buying the real stuff, which could drive up seafood prices. Because now, if dudes got to sell you real tuna, you're going to pay will. for re- you're, you know you're going to pay for real tuna. But I would rather know and have be, be yeah. eating something authentic. You know yeah, exactly. So exactly. Um, this this actually ties very nicely to uh, my first story. Some some similar themes here. Uh, we're going to talk snakeheads, which is a, a oh. favorite subject of mine. Um, yeah. And they, they've just made uh, headlines in a big way out here. And things have been pretty quiet on the, the snakehead front for a while. But um, this story is both confirming fears and perhaps exciting a handful of snake-obsessed weirdos, such as myself. I don't know. But this comes from uh, penlive.com. And it turns out that just this spring, Workers at the Conowingo Dam, which is the first major dam on the Susquehanna River closest to its mouth, have removed a whopping 1,000 pounds of snakeheads from the fish ladders, right? Whoa. It's a lot. It's a lot of snakeheads. It's a lot of snakes. It's a lot. You need a lot of frogs to handle 1,000 pounds of snakeheads. Uh, so um, this is so concerning that, that Maryland state and federal uh, resource agencies asked Exelon, the company that operates the dam, to completely shut down the fish ladder on the eastern side of the river for the year. And the ladder on the west side of the dam consists of a series of gates and channels of water that are actually designed to attract fish into a tank-like hopper that is then lifted into the air to a sorting table where biologists manually sort the fish. So, of course, the idea of these ladders, as with all ladders, is to let the right species go through. Species here would be shad, herring, um, that these ladders are supposed to help support I, I did not know this. Once they're in the sorting table, they're then put into trucks with portable tanks to be moved further upriver. So, what? It's, it's, yeah, it's this huge operation. And the invasives, of course, are weeded out, uh, which also includes blue and uh, flathead catfish, as well as the snakeheads. So, folks in that area have been concerned for a long time that snakes will invade the Susquehanna. And based on those hauls, clearly plenty are trying. The snakeheads want to be in the Susquehanna very badly. They went in. And I I know there are some in that river. I know people that have caught them. Uh, But so far, they're not nearly as established as they are in other rivers. And the bright side uh, is that even if they do get through Conowingo, they've just got a ton more dams. The Suskies dammed pretty far up. But on a personal note, the irony in this for me is that as a guy that spent a lot of time snaking, uh, you know, people are worried that an infestation there will hurt smallmouth populations since that's Kind of what the Susquehanna is, is really known for. You know, it's smallmouth yep. fishing. Yep. Um, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, all the giant flatheads that have already worked their way pretty far upriver, they're going to kill all the small jaws long before a snakehead population. <laughs> like, this is happening Fair. now already. I mean, and these are not like a bunch of little ones, giant flatheads everywhere. They eat swim baits, like, they're everywhere. So I, I commend, you know, like the effort to keep these invasives from getting further upriver at Conowingo. Um, but again, it, it, there's already some problems that are very, very well established. So final note, which I found cool. Uh, not only are the dam operators extremely committed to doing their part, uh, you know, in, in this manual labor to yeah. keep these fish from getting upriver, right? To date, more than a thousand pounds of snakeheads captured in the ladder. Um, because this has been going on for several years. They got 1,000 pounds this spring, but 
over the last few years they've been they've been collecting them over a thousand pounds have already been processed and given to local food banks so the dam folks have partnered nice. with a local nice. seafood wholesaler who carts all those snakes away and cleans them and lucky you people who happen to use those food banks because i've said a million times i would take a snakehead fillet over a walleye fillet any day so i think the 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 end takeaway is that you know obviously snakehead numbers are increasing they're not going away because i mean a thousand pounds of fish in one spring is a lot of fish there's there's no doubt but again still proving that that increase has has devastated any particular fishery or ecosystem is is difficult you know that's not as cut and dry but clearly these numbers are going up so i just said man that's that's a ton of snakes it is all right so here's my question they've assuming they've had these mitigation procedures available to them for a long time. They've been able to shut off that Eastern ladder and divert everything to the Western ladder where they Mm -hmm. can sort it. And and you probably don't know the answer to this, but why didn't they do that with the catfish? So I, I, and this is my basic understanding, the snakeheads, you know, they're in the Potomac river. They're in a lot of the rivers in Virginia and Maryland. And one would assume that those fish are, are breeding and migrating up the northern Chesapeake Bay and trying yeah. to get up the Susquehanna River. Right. The consensus around here, this goes for the Schuylkill River uh, in Philadelphia as well as the Susquehanna, Maryland, Pennsylvania, they all had pretty robust channel cat stocking uh, regiments, right? Because it's popular fish. So they've always yep. supplemented channel cats. And at some point down the line, which happens from some hatchery, a couple little baby flatheads oh. end up in there. You don't know it. Because the blue cats are invasive in the Potomac, which is would be the next major river south of the Susquehanna. So they're trying to keep them out too. Mm-hmm. But it's not like these flatheads were naturally somewhere and then came up there. Those they were, were stocked. They were stocked inadvertently. Got it. Right, but that's, right, right, sort yeah. of, that's sort of the consensus of what happened. And I mean, I've been there, dude. I've fished for them. You fished for them. They are mean. I mean, a 30-pound flathead will swallow a three-pound smallmouth like it doesn't even exist. And yeah. it's a it's a real concern. I have buddies who fish out there all fall, and they're catching just as many flatheads throwing jigs and stuff for smallmouths as they are smallmouths. So I, I don't think that the overall snakehead worry will ever go away. I think a lot more people understand it now and are less tense about it. But it's this big shocking headline of 1,000 pounds of snakehead. In reality, I wouldn't worry about them as much as the the flatheads that are already up there. You know, it's a branding problem. I think it is like a flathead doesn't sound nearly as scary as a snakehead. <laughs> I think it's I true. Think that's the issue personally. It's true, but you uh, know, yeah. I mean, I don't. I wish I. I don't know enough to come in definitively one way or the other. I, I would say probably the native fish don't need any more competitors when they're already having to deal with the flatheads. Would be well, would sure. be. A, I'm not saying this one way or the other on the snakeheads, but they probably don't need any more competition. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry 
if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? You need a brake light fixed? You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I do not have a great segue <laughs> other than this is going to talk about. No, it's not. I, I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm, I'm, <laughs> all I'm doing is I'm going to talk about weird objects found in or on fish. That's like what it. I'm going to do. I like it. Uh, and first, this is a, a shorty, but uh, this was pretty widely reported. A charter captain on Lake Michigan was cleaning one of his clients' lake trout early this week and found a Lego in its stomach. And he was quoted as saying, like, I'm going to try and figure out how to rig Legos, which I don't think is going to be any more effective than a spoon. But, you know, it's kind of a cute <laughs> story and a good reminder, you know, fish eat all kinds of random stuff and we probably shouldn't pitch anything in the water. We don't want going into fish. Just I figured I, I figure the trout stepped on the Lego. It doesn't have hands. So when I do that, <laughs> I pick it up it. and throw it. It so pissed it just ate it out of anger. I think that's exactly what happened. <laughs> but that story, like the list the music, that that whole thing, it reminded me of another incident from 2019 that has always stuck with me. Do you remember the story about the angler who caught a steelhead in Lake Michigan right near Chicago that had a wedding ring zip tied to its caudal. Do you remember that one? I don't remember the the zip tied to its caudal specifically, but man, over the years of just covering fish news, there's been the wedding ring on the Marlins bill, like wedding ring. There's a bunch of wedding ring stuff. We're, we're on a wedding ring kick, so just hold on to that. Uh, but the, this one, that one from a couple years ago stuck with me because what happened is some fishing guide in Michigan had gotten divorced because... I mean, because he was a fishing guide, and the guy, you know, <laughs> he claimed common, that happens. Yeah, it yeah. does. He, he claimed it was because his <laughs> wife hated how much he fished, and that ended their marriage. And that's not an uncommon story with fishing guides. Like, right. I can vouch for that. Uh, 
and and the the guide he thought the ring was cursed and he wanted to get rid of it and all right fine i can follow you that for but what i can't understand is that he decided to zip tie this this tainted band to a steelhead and then release the fish which yeah that's just a dick move yes like it's not Don't the fish's that. fault you got divorced yep that fish that the fish doesn't want to wear that dude's symbol of marital failure either and it sure as hell doesn't want a plastic zip tie cutting into its body. Anyway, seven weeks later, the fish was caught again, and someone else ended up with the ring. Something kind of similar. Again, we're on the wedding ring thing. Kind of similar happened recently. About a week ago, a woman named Susan Pryor was snorkeling near her home on Norfolk Island. And Norfolk is a South Pacific island between New Zealand and New Caledonia, and it's technically an Australian province. Pryor spotted a sand mullet wearing something around its body, that looked distinctly out of place. So sand mullet feed by rooting their snouts around in the sand, hence the name. And, and <laughs> prior has seen them in the past, get caught up in other stuff like plastic soda rings and, and hair ties, right? Cause they're, they're just rooting around the sand and they can easily turn something over and swim through it and get stuck. But this one looked different. And so she caught up to the fish when she was snorkeling, actually snapped several pictures. You can see these online showing this bone white mullet with a gold wedding band just behind its head. Norfolk Island is small. It's got like 2,000 residents. And, and the word had gone around the community the previous Christmas that a tourist had lost his wedding ring while swimming. Pryor sent photos of, of the bedazzled fish to the man who'd lost his ring, and he confirmed the, the mullet is now wearing his nuptial band. <laughs> now, here's the interesting part for me anyway. Mullet are notoriously difficult to catch on rod and reel. We've talked about that. Oh, yeah. It's possible. But yeah, it's really difficult. You're going to work at it. You're going to work yeah. at it. Yeah. Right. So the idea of trying to target one specific individual mullet to catch with, with bait, it, that, that to me just smacks a futility. That ain't going to happen. A lot of people who harvest mullet catch them with throw nets. And, and that seems slightly more doable. But you're, you're still talking about trying to catch one, one single mullet. mullet. Yeah. I want in, that mullet right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is just, <laughs> it's crazy. But still, prior, this woman is determined. So she's organizing this group of locals to go out and like snorkel around and try and find that fish and then get them to corral that fish over toward fishermen with throw nets and catch it. You'll be shocked to hear that so far the efforts have not paid off. Of but, course not, because it's already been pooped out by a Trevally or something by now, <laughs> dude. The there there is a the rings owners offering a reward so maybe they've got the incentive maybe maybe that'll happen I don't know if it does we'll update you but I'm not I, I think this is the last we're ever going to see of that ring personally probably you ever lose your wedding ring while fishing I did like I have like not within, knock on within, wood I I, I I did a thing where I, I remember. I got my ring sized and I was like so nervous because I was about to get married that I was just like rushing and couldn't believe I was ring shopping for myself. It was like just like too much to bear. Yeah. And I put the sizer on. I'm like, yeah, this is the right size. But then I got the ring, which was like titanium carbide unsizable and it was way too big. But mm. rather than make a thing because my wife was already stressed out about other wedding stuff, I was like, it's fine. It's totally fine. fine. And I was like, I'm going to lose it. And I lost it. And I found it in a riffle. Like I went no back way. and I found it in a riffle in a smallmouth stream. And then I got a different ring. The, the ring I wear now is, is a cheaper ring that won't come off, but it's not my actual wedding band. So that is that is my ring story. But I hope they, I, you uh, know, I hope they get the mullet. Um, you know uh, that that would be that would be neat. But uh, I wouldn't hold out hope for uh, 
for that. Anyway, she no. should have had a tiny spear gun. It would have been done. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Of, she's a crusader, <laughs> though. She's trying to save the fish. That's She doesn't care about the ring. She's like, the poor fish is weighted down. She doesn't want to spear that fish. Oh, well, the fish is fine. It's fine. <laughs> anyway, I'm trying to think of a good transition here. I don't have it, so I'll just backpedal and say that I was going to do that, that really, um, you know, thoughtful piece that you did on, on, on the pen that tells you what kind of fish you have. But I, I, uh, I trumped that because I hate to say it, uh, but the Fonz is in trouble again. Ah, yes. Yes. I saw this one. The Fonz is wrong. You got to Fonz. I don't got to do nothing. Yeah. So Henry Winkler, who of course played the Fonz on happy days has angered the masses with a shameful, horrible (laughs) stomach turning photo on Twitter get this, of him holding a nice cutthroat trout. And then, to pour salt in the wound of this atrocity, he had the gall to caption the photo, I can't even express the beauty everywhere on our planet. How dare you, Fonz? How dare you enjoy fly fishing and smile ear to ear with a gorgeous trout? So, to backfill just a bit, um, I'm sure some of you know that Henry Winkler is an extremely avid fly fisherman. He's written, has he written a book about it? Do I have that yes, right? That's, that's why this, I, this, why I don't get why this is a story. Exactly. We're going to get to that. He published an entire it. book yeah. called, he, I never met an, I think it was like, I never met an idiot on the river something like that. Yes. So he's, he's written a book. He's written about fly fishing. He's been interviewed about it ad nauseum. Okay. But here's something I did not know. I only learned this after reading this story on popculture.com. Apparently the Fonz has a ton of new fans, right? And these are young people, you know, like millennials and junk, that while perhaps are they're unfamiliar with his screen work or his his history, have just gravitated to his Twitter account. Now, really? I don't know, yeah, I don't know what Henry's appeal is to the next generation, frankly, right? He's a 75-year-old dude worth, according to this, like 40 mil, which allows him to just really live the dream these days and just fish, and do nature stuff and enjoy himself. But when he recently posted this grip and grin, it you saw this. It was like met with this insane outrage, just like off the charts negativity, which I don't fully understand because, again, it's sure as hell not like this is the first time the Fonz has been seen holding a fish on the Internet. So No, I, I'm pretty sure that there's a grip and grin on the cover of his book. Exactly. And furthermore, for just from a fishing perspective, in my opinion, this is like the most benign, respectful grip and grin you could ask for. Like, so Henry is on a, he's on a small mountain stream beaming over this catch. The fly is still in the trout's mouth, and he's supporting it appropriately. His hands appear to be wet. And I he he also might be kneeling. I'm not sure. But even if I'm wrong, when you when let's see if you agree. When you look at enough fishing photos, like you can tell the difference between stage shots where like someone played with the fish or posed or moved around to get like this perfect awesome fish shot versus like a quick snap before release. And this reads was, like, yes. just snap this real quick so I can put this yes. fish back. Yes. Right? And, and, and what I'd say that the look on his face supports that. Cause he's, he genuinely like he just seems smacked. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh my God. I got this yeah. fish. You guys. Yeah. So it reads to me like, like a, a very respectful grip and grin. Yet here's just a small sampling of the comments that Fonzie received on Twitter. I hope you put that beautiful fish back in the beautiful water to continue to live a beautiful, peaceful life. Take a photo. Don't rip an animal out of its natural environment with a hook through its face so you can feel something. Honestly, fishing is weird, man. I would agree with your caption, but showing off a poor dead fish sure doesn't jive with the message. 
Bet you the fish wish you went anywhere but there for your beauty and nature fix. Now, of course, many people came to the Fonz's defense in his Twitter feed, stressing that he's a big-time catch-and-release guy and, like, he's been fishing a long time, to which someone responded, catch-and-release is almost as bad. It's stressing that little being. And, of course, the being part went just everybody. There were so many replies to that. Uh, my favorite being, you just killed 10,000 dust mites by sitting down, murderer. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite one. So I, <laughs> That's maybe maybe you have, but like I've never interviewed Henry. We've never crossed paths, but I've nope. I've everything I've ever heard from people that have, have spent time with him is like he is the sweetest guy, a staunch conservationist, and a hell of an angler. And I'm also I'm all for, as are you, the occasional debate about catch and release best practices sure. and stuff yep. among anglers with an understanding of the sport and the fish. But these comments are just coming from people just appalled with zero understanding of fishing. And I just like to say, sorry, Fonz, right? As yeah. a man that went out of his way to pose with the bronze Fonz statue of you in Milwaukee. Okay, I feel bad for you. If if Milwaukee wasn't such a fishy town, I'd worry they'd try and take the statue down. Anyway, <laughs> that that ain't going to happen to Milwaukee. I, no. no, but let's just leave the Fonz alone. Just shut up and let the man fish, please. Everywhere I go, everywhere I turn, he is there. It's like having gum on your shoe. <laughs> I got two things I want to say about this before before we close it out. Number one, I, I can I think I actually have some secondhand support for what you say about him being a good dude. I I had a bunch of friends who guided at a lodge. I almost guided there myself here in Montana where he was a regular. And I, a bunch of people I know and friends of mine guided him and said nothing but good things. And I can tell you what, as a guide, you learn pretty quickly the people in your boat, if they're good people or not. You can't hide yeah. all yeah. day on, on the water. The other thing is I feel a little bad for, for Mr. Winkler being pigeonholed as the Fonz, because he's gone on to do so many other great things in his more contemporary career. Yeah, well, he Not was the, the coach and the water boy, being, wasn't he? He was a coach, he was a coach and water boy, but have you seen <laughs> Barry? No. The show's brilliant. I have And he is brilliant in it. Like, I would like, I, I think we should all celebrate him for his more contemporary work. I, for one, believe that. And finally, Winkler, Mr. Winkler, Henry, if I may, if if you're listening, you're welcome on the show anytime, and we'll Please. take you fishing any anytime you want to go. Please, anytime. I, I got to say, I pulled a couple of of, of 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 Fonzie quotes there, but in finding those, I got lost in a Happy Days rabbit hole, and I'm like, this is actually really funny. Like, I should go back and watch more Happy Days. I never paid that much attention. So we'll fill, we'll see if uh, Phil wants to go see Spiracy, if he wants to go Happy Days. A lot of choices here. Uh, for Phil. And then as soon as we're done hearing from Phil this week, we're going to do a sale bin that a lot of you guys have been uh, asking for. Tenkara people, this one's for you. <laughs> Joe, it is always important to get an occasional reminder to steer clear of the comment section, so thank you for that story. But I have to give the win to Miles this week for giving us a little sneak peek on what to look for in next year's SkyMile catalog. <laughs> Guys, the Spotify playlist is awesome. What a great idea. Good job on that. Joe, I think you wanted me to come for the Jimmy world and stay for the Bad Brains, which was very thoughtful. But I actually ended up coming for the Psychedelic Furs and staying for Peter Cetera. So, joke's on you. Or more so, Miles, it sounds like. Well, why did you put the head in the paper? You don't know what I'm getting at. Well, you, you didn't have to be so hurtful with me, so angry. So we've, we've just chimed this in as a sale bin. We're going to call this a sale bin. Uh, it's really not a sale bin, though. As some of you guys know, uh, Miles was recently um, out here on the East Coast 
at my house, and even though this is you're going to hear this later, he's here right now. I'm looking. He's at my kitchen yeah. table. No, this is this is a time warp because I'm st- I'm sitting here yes. at the Cermeli kitchen. We're three table. feet apart, and it's been like a, we hadn't seen each other in person in a year. It's true. And we've had some fun out here. We, you guys will see all that fun later. But we're like we we'd be we'd be stupid not to not to lay something down while we're in the same room. So my kids are at school. It's quiet here. Uh, the house is in relatively nice order because you're a house guest, so we've cleaned for you. <laughs> Which was unnecessary, but appreciated. And we figured since we're just sitting here shooting the shit, um, let's let's talk about Tenkara because <laughs> we we've Why made not? fun of Tenkara a time or two. And and as you pointed out, a lot of people write in and go, Hey, stop making fun of me and my Tenkara rod. It goes one of two ways. We get we get two two polarized responses. It's either, hey man, like why you got to be so hard on Tenkara? It's it's fun. <laughs> and I agree. We've said this. We have admitted this publicly. Tenkara is fun. Mm-hmm. It's the culture around Tenkara yep. that we find so ripe for ridicule. Right. And that's because something has just happened recently, which a lot of you guys have tuned <laughs> us into. This just, this proves our point so freaking well. For all of you out there who are like, come on, man, quit it. On No. Right now, we have proof that the whole <laughs> culture and scene of Tenkara sucks. What, what did we find? What 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 is this? So just a couple days ago, uh, this this fashion clothing brand called Supreme. Are you, were you were they in with the them? skate scene? Oh, I I feel like they might have been skate posers, but I think mostly they're just like f- urban fashion. I think okay. whatever is like urban fashion, they slap their label on. Oh, and here's the funny thing about this story, because we did the news thing not too long ago about the uh, Pokemon lures and how yeah. in Japan it's like a big deal for these fashion brands and things to have fishing products. And we were like, I hope that doesn't start happening here. And shit, wouldn't you know it? Well, I mean, oh, God. So what's it, it's, it's, it's similar because it's Supreme, the American fashion company, and a Japanese company called South to West 8. And together, they have made a whole line of fashion accessories to go along with a Tenkara rod. Right. And it's it's truly awful. I, I'm, I, <laughs> I, it is so everything. So, that, oh, so Supreme now has a Tenkara rod. Yes. But then they've created this whole other line of wearables around the Tenkara rod, essentially. So like you'd, you'd buy the Tenkara rod and then like to fit the whole bill, you'd buy all this other shit to wear while you're Tenkara fishing. So I, I think I need to quote some of the things I've been reading about this. Here, okay. Here's one. While fully functional, it's not the type of gear you'd expect to see at the river. And indeed, because of Supreme's customer base, many, if not most of the people who purchase will have no intentions of fishing in it. <laughs> This sort of cosplaying isn't unprecedented in fashion. Just look at the popularity of Carhartt outside of blue-collar workers. And fishing should never be compared to cosplay. Everything about that to me is wrong. And this just, this undermines all of these efforts that we have to to genuinely bring people into fishing and participate in the sport. This shit isn't helping. (laughs) It's Fishing is not cosplay. It's not a fetish that you do. Like there, there's. There, it should not turn into like a furry convention in Vegas. Right. That's right. not fishing. Right. Yeah. I have a problem with that. <laughs> According to one one fly fishing forum, here's another quote: "I guarantee, not a single fish will be caught with one of these." <laughs> if you are if you are releasing a fishing product and a fishing line and the response from the fishing community is I guarantee not a single fish will be caught. There is a fundamental issue. 
Agreed. The wheels have fallen off the goddamn bus. So you were reading one a little while ago. It was like a review. Yeah. I've, I've read a couple of reviews. And there are words in here I don't understand. G- g- give us a sample. Where is this coming from again? <laughs> this is coming from Input, which is, I, I think, like a fashion blog. I'm, I'm not... I'm not totally sure. The The intro goes, Supreme is going fairly niche for its latest collaboration, partnering with the Japanese fishing brand South 2 West 8. The outcome is some of the steeziest gear you've ever seen, but in this era of fashion's immersion into GORP, you don't need to know how to cast... <laughs> this doesn't even make sense. You don't need to know how to cast a real, R-E-A-L, to embrace the look. Now, what's steezy mean? Is that what the kids are saying? What does that I mean? I think the kids were saying that like 15 years ago. I don't believe I've ever heard it. I, th- I mean, it's like your swag, man. Your swagger, your steez. And you looked up Gorp. I looked. <laughs> so <laughs> don't actually maybe do look up Gorp on Urban Dictionary, but we can't say what comes up when you look not up there. Gorp on not there we Urban can. Dictionary. And that's not what they meant. So Gorp, as I've always known it, is a, another an acronym for trail mix. I, I didn't you know didn't know that. this? Nope. Okay, so Gorp don't need a lot of trail mix. mix. But apparently, in the fashion scene, there's a new. And I had to look this up. There's a new term in the fashion scene called Gorpcore. Here's here's the definition: Gorpcore, named after the colloquial term for trail mix, is a style focused around utilitarian, functional, outdoors inspired gear. So just like that other article was comparing this new collaboration with Supreme to how Carhartt is making the. The, the, yeah. the, the blue collar cool. I think that all, I think it's like a new version into, I want to look like I do stuff outdoors without doing stuff outdoors while still being fashionable. <laughs> all of which does not make sense to me. It just doesn't. Well, so the rod is, I mean, the rod is just a Tenkara rod, but the clothing, like if you look at the picture of this attire, what comes to mind is like, who's that rapper that's always in the news? Like, Six nine or something. He was in jail. Yeah. He's got the rainbow yeah. hair. Yes. and he would wear this. He would wear this. It definitely looks like six nine would be all about this. I, I I have trouble describing it. To be perfectly honest with you, this stuff is is just some of the strangest thing I've ever. One is like a it's like a mosquito netting shirt, mm-hmm. but that's tie dyed and goes <laughs> yeah. all the way over your whole face. But the, there's there's a there's a promotional image here where the dude's got his entire face covered by this tie dyed mosquito netting clothing, but he's wearing shorts. <laughs> see and see, there, that does there's doesn't, a problem there. Jive. Yeah, that, yeah, I dude. I, I think my takeaway, I, I think for, for the people who are like, stop making fun of me in Tenkara, it's like, well, we already kind of have something like a little bit to make fun of in that culture. But now like, look, how do you feel about this? Like now they've taken this thing that you love <laughs> and given us opportunity to like, now we yeah. can, now it's even cheesier. Because now think- it's your tactic that's been adopted by the non-fish people for the fishing cosplay. Okay. <laughs> They're not making cosplay, you know, slick bibs and, uh, you know, trolling reels. They went right after Tenkara. I I would hope that true, like, people who actually like to Tenkara fish hate this the most. That's, that would be my expectation. Like, for me, as someone who's kind of outside of that scene and likes to poke fun at it, this is just grist for the mill. It's just more (laughs) gasoline I can throw onto this fire that I think is funny. If I... For those of you out there who are like, no, man, I, I love Tenkara, and I think it's like the most pure, wonderful way of fishing, sure. you should be incensed right now. 
You should be like willing to burn down the Supreme store. If again, if I were you, that would be how, how I'd feel. Um, there, I got to th- throw a couple more quotes in here. Yeah. Fleece jackets, the ultimate fodder for gorp devotees. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I just can't. <laughs> There's also a long sleeve t-shirt. If costume esque dressing is less your thing. And the accessory front is represented by a mesh game bag and hats of the jungle, bush, and balaclava variety. <laughs> Crucially, Supreme and South 2 West 8 have also crafted a co-branded Ted Car rod, and we just hope they're good enough to put to use instead of being mounted on the walls of a bunch of dorks, IKEA-decorated apartments. And that, my friends, is what is destined to happen with all of these rods and that's what's wrong with this idea. Well, you've already been letting us know what you think. Uh, keep doing that. This has been kind of sale bin, but really just making fun of Tenkara in Joe's <laughs> kitchen. And we're going to go have another beer now. Okay, I got to amend this a little bit. We will not judge anyone for bobber fishing unless they do so with that gear. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> that's straight up horrible. Wow. It is, and thanks again to all of you out there who found that before we did and and sent us links. I know we sometimes make up dumb stuff to poke fun at fishing culture, but even we couldn't come up with something that over-the-top satirical. Nope. We could not have done that. That one is 100% real, sadly. Yes, yes. But uh, we're not going to close out this week's show uh, that way. As promised, we're going to circle back to the lowly bobber in this week's End of the Line segment. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. My intention when I agreed to this end of the line segment was to trace the history of the iconic red and white push button bobber. Mostly out of spite. I assume this would be easy. North Americans have crowned the round bobber as our angling archetype. It's the universally accepted visual symbol for fishing, the profile that Companies slap on all kinds of products to tap into the seemingly lucrative market of shit non-fishermen buy for their friends and family who like to fish. It's on t-shirts, hats, beer koozies, Christmas tree ornaments, throw pillows, coffee mugs, folding chairs, flasks, even face masks. And the whole thing is frankly annoying. As we discussed earlier in the show, round Clip-on bobbers might be the least effective fishing float ever made. Their only attributes are that they're idiotically simple to use and relatively visible in the water. So the fact that they've become the visual representation of the act and culture of fishing, printed on all manner of stuff and then given to serious anglers, really is insulting. Committed cyclists don't get shirts with pictures of training wheels on them at every birthday. It's no wonder that bobber fishing gets such a bad rap among anglers of all types. It's, it's this kind of albatross we all carry. A regular reminder that the broader culture thinks we're complete idiots who tax our meager brain capacity trying to outwit creatures with problem-solving skills akin to gerbils. But despite the red and white bobbers ubiquity, I couldn't find any backstory for it. I have no idea who invented it and no explanation for where when or how it became the ever-present force that it is. And you know what? I don't really care, because f*** those things. Float fishing actually has a rich backstory. Over the past few centuries, anglers 
have poured as much thought and innovation into floats as just about any other piece of gear ever invented. I'm sure that fishing cultures all over the world independently figured out the advantage of adding something buoyant to the line. I mean, first, it keeps your bait suspended at a constant depth, and second, it lets you know when a fish is taking it. So those are two pretty significant advantages that I'm guessing just about every fishing culture figured out. But just like so many traditions, the culture we have most readily available documentation for is that of Western Europe, so that's mostly what I found. The online British Fishing Museum claims that anglers have been using floats since at least the 4th century AD, but they don't actually provide any evidence, and I didn't see that cited anywhere else. But just about every source I found agrees that the first printed reference to fishing floats came in 1496 in the Treaties of Fishing with an Angle, which is often cited as the first text about fishing ever published in English. It gives relatively detailed instructions on how to fashion cork floats, and use bird feather quills as bobber stops. About a hundred years later, the quill bobber appeared in The Art of Angler, published in 1577 by an unknown author. That book suggests pushing together two cut swan feather quills to make a cylindrical float. A couple centuries after that, international trade brought African porcupine quills to British anglers, which was a huge step up from trying to jam two cut swan feather quills together, which really seems like a pain in the ass. African porcupine quills are light, watertight, relatively straight, and hard as rhino horn. In fact, they're still used as floats. You can go buy some online right now. Prior to the 19th century, anglers had to make their own floats, and they were pretty much limited to basic egg-shaped corks or quills. But through the mid-1800s, as recreational fishing grew in England, they became a commercially viable product. As is so often the case, commodification drove innovation. By the early 20th century, hundreds, if not thousands, of floats were available in various shapes, sizes, and applications. Manufacturers started using different materials like balsa and aluminum, and experimenting with unique designs like adding counterweights and creating section telescoping floats. Once plastic became available and the commercial market for fishing tackle exploded post-World War II, just about everyone was trying to build a better bobber. I actually dug into patents for fishing floats, and I found all kinds of crazy designs that haven't really caught on. I'm just going to share a few of these with you. I found ones that claimed to set the hook automatically. Ones that light up or send out radio signals when a fish takes the bait. Ones that hold the baited hook in a protected cup so that it won't fly off mid-cast. And then deposit the hook in the bait in the water upon landing. Ones with built-in speakers that emit fish-attracting sounds. Ones with propellers to hold their position against tide and current. There's even a patent that tried to claim intellectual property ownership over, quote, a hollow body filled with trapped air. I happen to know from inside information that one didn't stand up when challenged in court. But the point is, float fishing has inspired a vast catalog of creative genius. Floats represent one of the most elegant aspects of fishing, taking a dead simple concept and elevating it through creativity, innovation, and craft. So set up that slip opera and rig that stick float with pride. For much of the continuum of fishing history, floats have been paragons of fishing innovation and effectiveness. Only recently, like within the past generation, has their public perception been corrupted. 
Not coincidentally, that change seems to have corresponded with the rise of the red and white bobber as the culturally accepted symbol of fishing. So once again, I blame the round bobber. that thing. That's all we have on this episode, but if you're sifting through the flotsam of discarded floats, bobbers, and balloons recently washed ashore, you'll discover that asking a fishing shop employee to borrow his car because you don't have a spare tire is totally inappropriate. Bugnet camo is the absolute worst would-be fashion trend since leisure suits, and that attaching a buoyant device to your leader doesn't necessarily mean you're a novice angler, but judging someone else for doing so definitely makes you an asshole. Could not agree more with all those say, all those statements. Uh, good news for those audiophiles out there who share oh, our yeah. eclectic taste in music. We've started a bent playlist on Spotify. So yes, we if, have. If you're if you're on Spotify, go check that out. Tell us what you think, uh, what you like, what what you think we're missing. Just tell us about it. Tell us about it. Also, hit us on the gram with the hashtags Bent Podcast and Degenerate Angler and keep sending those sailbin items, bar nominations, fish news suggestions, and awkward fishing photos coming to bent at themeateater.com. Please do. And also do yourself a favor this weekend. Go bobber fishing. Don't don't use the little red and white one, but go bobber fishing, especially if you think you're too good for it. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.